All right, good morning, everyone. We are live and we will be getting started with this class shortly. But before we start class, I just wanted to let you know that we have a couple other classes coming up at Drisha this week. Tomorrow, Monday evening, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, we are super fortunate to have Dr. Adele Berlin uh, beginning a three-part series on Shir Hashirim. And Wednesday night, uh, we are going to be having a lecture from Dr. Malka Sunkovich, who I think is just fabulous, absolutely one of my favorite educators at Drisha, and she'll be talking about the early development of Jewish universalism from the biblical to rabbinic period. So you can find out more information and register for those classes on our website. I will put the link in the chat so folks can join us. And um, without further ado, I see that Rabbi Silver is here. So this is the second part in a five-part class on Isaac and Rebecca, partners in succession. We will be working out of the Chumash. So if you have a Chumash that you like, you're welcome to bring that up. Otherwise, we will share text from Safaria on the screen. Um, if you're joining us here on Zoom, you're welcome to chime in. Uh, Calmly, uh, we, we like the raise hand function um, during designated times where we can ask deeper questions and share comments. If you're not comfortable using your microphone, feel free to use the chat. If you're joining us on Facebook, type your questions and comments over there. I will bring them over here. If you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello. It's not very interactive, but we hope you enjoy it nonetheless. And uh, with that, I think we can get started. Rabbi Silver? Yes, thank you. Okay, so good. Welcome, everyone. So we were in the middle of the Akeda, chapter 22, and I just wanted to finish that up uh, this morning, and then we move forward. Uh, so the just to get our bearings over here, the Akeda is, one might say, a culminating story. And we spoke about that last week. It's the last communication that uh, Avram receives from God. It has the term lechucha in it. And as such, it is parallel to the first communication back in chapter 12, where God instructed Avram to leave his home, his homeland, his family, and to go uh, to the place that I will show you. And here's the place I will tell you in chapter 22. But the parallels between 12 and 22, not limited to the Lechucha. Lechucha is one of the parallels, but there are many other parallels. The Elon Moran, in the first story, the Haram Moriah in the second story is a literary effect. But the idea of the sacrifice, the altar, which appears in chapter 12, Avram goes into the land, he builds altars. And over here, once again, we have the Mizbeach. In each of the two stories, we have a blessing. Chapter 12 begins with the blessing. If you go, I will bless you. And in chapter 22, the blessing will appear at the end of the chapter, uh, parallel to chapter 12. In short, one can read, I think one should read, chapter 22 as a culminating story. Now, when I say a culminating story, of course, we understand that the story does not end in chapter 22. But it is to say the story of Avram continues. Continues in chapter 23, 24, and part of 25 as well. So what, so what I mean by a culminating story then 
it's not, it is a culminating story. It's not the culminating story. There are two different endings to the Abraham narrative. If we have a chance later, I will reflect on that, the significance of having two, two endings to a story. And I'll give another example of a story that has two endings, not one, but two. And in fact, is deeply related to the Akedah. In any event, Abram uh, is commanded to get up and to go and to sacrifice his only son, Yechidcha, the only one, the only covenantal one, the one you love. And Avram does not hesitate. He gets up early in the morning. So he has, he takes the, saddles this animal, takes two Narim with him. He hews the wood and he goes to the place of which God has spoken. That's back in verse number three. And on the third day, we're told, he lifts up his eyes, he sees the place from a distance. And now we have, as we discussed last week, a conversation between Abraham on one hand and these two Narim on the other. He instructs them, you stay here, you stay with the Chamor, but I and the young boy, referring to Yitzchak, will go there. And then he says, will bow down and return to you. So what he says to them is that expresses the, uh, expresses the idea, the fact that he intends to return. They intend to return, is the plural. So what he's saying is, we shall return to you. On the other hand, we know what God has commanded, namely to bring him up as a sacrifice. So how can Avram say to them, we shall return? I mean, the question is not, or the question, well, he doesn't want to alarm them, but the point is, why is it in the text altogether? In fact, why are these two Narim there altogether? Because we could have told the same story without them. So presumably what the Torah is saying is that on some level, not that he understands how, but on some level he believes that at least there's a possibility that he will not have to sacrifice Yitzchak, that something else will happen. On the other hand, he knows he's not hallucinating. He knows that God has actually spoken to him and said, bring him up as a sacrifice. So he's going to do what God commands him to do. He doesn't question it. But on the other hand, at least in terms of speech, in this verse, he's suggesting that they that Isaac will will survive this ordeal. Will bow down and we shall return. Now the Torah continues with the story, though, in terms of what he does, not what he says. And then verse number six in Pasuk so now we're told that Avraham, it's once again parallel to the Ishmael story. There he took the Cheman Mayim and Lechem Samal Shechmah, he placed it on her. And here he gives the word to Yisrael to carry. And they're walking together. He himself has the fire, he has the, the uh, knife. They walk together in contrast to Hagar, who stood from afar. And now we have the second conversation. This is verse number seven. 
So Yitzchak said to his father Abraham, Father. And Abraham answers, Hineni Bini, I am here, my son, recalling the first Hineni of the chapter, verse number one. Vayomer, and Yitzchak says, See, I see the uh, fire, I see the wood. Where's the animal? Where's the sacrificial animal? Where's the set, the lamb? Vayomer, Avraham, so Avraham's answer is Yitzchak. Elohim Yirelo Haser Liorah Bini. So his answer is God will provide, literally will see. In this case, it means to choose. God will choose, God will see uh, the Seh, this lamb, for the burnt offering. So now we have two speeches of Abraham. The first is we're going to bow down and return. Um, the, uh, the second speech is that God will provide. Here again, we have the word I see that Micah in the chat said, Yitzhak does not mention the knife, which is a good point. He said, perhaps it's too scary. That's the view of Uriel Simon. He says exactly that. He doesn't want to mention the knife. He has perhaps questions what's going on over here. Maybe he suspects that he may be the sacrificial lamb, one might say, but uh, it's a good point. The, the knife is not mentioned. Where's the, where's the set? What happened to the knife? And the Torah says he takes the knife. The knife, knives eat. In biblical Hebrew, a knife, a knife or a sword eats. So is one that eats, which is the knife. In any event, two speeches suggesting that it's not necessarily going to happen. And on the other hand, the verbs, which all point towards one direction, which is it is going to happen. So now let's resume our story in verse number nine. And now they have arrived, that's one of the critical words in the chapter. The word hamakom with the hay, the place, the the place, they come to the place of which God had spoken, and the word hamakom will appear in this chapter. Does appear four times. Four times we have hamakom. It, the chosen place, the place which God chooses. In the Bible, God always chooses the sacred place. As we have, for example, in the book of Devarim, when it talks about the central place of sacrifice, of service, which we call the Mishkan or the Mikdash, it's It's the place that God chooses in which God's name is to be found, or sometimes to put God's name there. And here too, we have the place. This one might say uh, precipitates what we have in the book of Devarim in terms of the chosen place, Hamakom. They have come now to Hamakom. And now we have a set of verbs. And Abraham builds there Sham. Shakain Shemo Sham. Abraham builds the altar there. 
and he sets out the wood, and he binds Yitzchak, his son. He places him above the wood. Avram literally stretches out his hand. And he takes the knife to slaughter his son. So he's going to do what God has told him to do. And suddenly, we have in verse number 11, suddenly the angel calls down from heaven. Avraham, 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 repeats it. Maybe there's a sense of alacrity. He wants to stop him immediately before he goes through with this. Now we have the third Hineni. The first Hineni was in response to when God, even before God tells him what to do, Avram said Hineni in verse number one. And in responding to Yitzchak, Hineni Bene, and now the second Hineni in terms of God, there is God's Malach. Avram, Avraham, Hineni. Yes. Do not tishrach yodcha elanar means don't harm. That verb, that expression, wishroach yad, is one that appears many times, and it's a very central one in this story. So, God, so uh, the angel says, don't harm the child, don't do anything. Don't do anything at all. Could be a play on the word mum, which is a blemish. Don't do anything. I now know, says the angel, that you are a God-fearing person. And you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This was only a test. And the purpose of the test is made explicit in this verse, is to see whether or not you fear God. That's the language of the Torah, the purpose of the test, as stated by this angel, is to determine whether Abraham is God-fearing. By that, presumably means you abide by what God tells you to do. You don't make up your own rules. You abide by God's rules, and you've passed the test. So let's just, for a moment, think about this, the significance of these last two verses. So let me say two things about these two verses, which are, I think, very important towards an understanding of this story of the Akeda. The Akeda we have seen to this point is related to three different episodes that appear earlier. Rashi emphasized the connection to the Ishmael story, Hagar Ishmael story. And there is ample support in the text for that, obviously. The Rashbam made the point that presumably, since the story begins with the words after these things, then presumably it refers to what just comes before. And what comes before is the treaty with Avimelech and Avram living, living in the land of the Plishtim for a long time. I'll get back to that in a couple of minutes. And then the third point, that we talked about last week and today as well, 
is that this follows all the stories. The Lechucha of chapter 22 is related in parallel to the Lechucha of chapter 12, which means this is a culminating story in which we take into account the entire trajectory of the Avram stories. This is the culminating story of Avram's career and should be read as such. And these three possibilities are not mutually exclusive. They're all right. They're all obviously correct. They're all obviously true. Gives one a sense when reading these great narratives, the, 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 the complexity involved. The truth of the matter is though, there's a fourth point. There's a fourth point. A fourth after these things refers to something in addition to those three is actually a fourth point. And that is, and that's made clear by, let's begin with, let, let me just try to describe how I came to this. What interested me was the expression, don't harm this boy, don't do anything. And we're told in the previous verse that Avram, in fact, by Yishrach Abraham et Yado, he stretched out his hand, he was going to sacrifice, to slaughter Yitzchak. And if we think about what this chapter is about, what happens in this chapter is that Avram is discovering, Avram is discovering uh, the sacred place. That is to say, he understands the place, Hamakom, that God has chosen. And then in point of fact, chapter 12 was the first special place to which Avram is directed. That's the land of Canaan, God appears there. God appeared to Avram in chapter 12 in verse number seven, the place that I will show you, enable you to see. And that chapter 12 is the sacred space, the land of Canaan. And chapter 22 is about Hamokom. Within that sacred space, there's another sacred space, which is Hashem Yireh will be called, the place in which that God both sees and is seen, the place of sacrifice, the special place within the place. And what's interesting is, if we think about the special place or special places, and Avram's mission has been to discover He's directed towards and perceives the sacred place. And we have to put that in the larger framework of the Book of Breshit. The Book of Breshit does not start with Abraham, even though some schools, when they teach the Chumash, start with Abraham. That's a bad mistake, because it doesn't start with Abraham. Chumash starts with Breshit, chapter 1, verse 1. And the Chumash describes two creations. One is the creation described in chapter 1 of everything, Shemayim and Eretz. And then in chapter two, verse number four, there's a second creation narrative. And now let me tell you, says the Chumash, the story of the creation of heaven and earth. And then we have a second story. And the second story would be called the story of Gan Eden. That is to say that within all creation, which is chapter one, there is one special place within the creation in which God and the human interact. And the Torah calls that the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden. God walks through the garden and God placed the human in that garden. That was the plan. 
that within all of creation, the human being and God can dwell together. The problem is that that plan doesn't work. There is, of course, the Nachash, and the Nachash disrupts the plan. The Nachash creates a division between God and the human. The human disobeys God. And at the end of the day, the Nachash succeeds in separating the human from God, and the human being is banished from the Garden of Eden. And the reason the human being is banished from the Garden of Eden is found, the Torah's stated reason for it, is found at the very end of the third chapter of Sefer Breshit, and I'll read that to you. After the disobedience, we have very end of chapter three, Vayomer Hashem Elohim. Hashem Elohim said in chapter three, verse number 22, Hein Hein, look here. The human is like one of us, the human knows good from evil. Like one of us is a divine side to the human. Human has eaten of the tree, the tovara, and now says God, and now, lest the human extend his hand, and take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the point is what God is concerned with is that the human being will in fact uh, see himself, themselves, herself as actually God. And that's the red line. Human being and God are operating two separate spheres. The human being cannot be God. That's clear. The concern is if the human being has not only knowledge but immortality, then the human will be too close to God. And therefore, that's not acceptable. And because verse number 22, we have verse number 23. And therefore, God sent him, means them, out of the garden. The human has been banished. Is sent out. And the Torah ends chapter 3 and the Garden of Eden story by Adam, The human has been banished. And that God places the entrance to Eden, the Kruvim, and the sword, the revolving sword, the fiery, ever-turning sword. So the human is banished from the Garden of Eden. Why? And now, what happens after chapter three, after we're banished from the Garden of Eden? So what happens is that there is the search for the alternative to Eden. This is what the Chumash is basically about. There's the search for the alternative to Eden. The alternative to Eden, actually, that is to say, the chosen, the chosen place, the alternative to Eden, that's the story of, uh, of Avraham. The place where God and the human can dwell together in the Chumash, there are two such places. The land of Canaan is one of them. And the second place, of course, is within the land of Canaan is the sacred place. In short, chapter 12, the first Lechucha is the first alternative and chapter 22, the second Rechucha, 
is the additional alternative. Those are the alternatives to Eden. And later it's the Mishkan and it's the Mikdash. Those are alternatives to Eden. It's not an accident that the Chumash, at the end of the book of Exodus, when it describes the Mishkan, has all kinds of language from the creation narratives there. Because in point of fact, that's exactly what the Mishkan is. You're building a little world in which God and the human being can actually dwell together. Now, before we get to the land of Canaan, in chapter 12, there was another attempt to create an alternative to Eden, a false alternative to Eden. And that, of course, is the story of the Tower of Babel. Migdal Babel was both a city which had a tower, let us make a name for ourselves, shame. The word shame, name, often refers to the temple, actually. As the Torah says, the place that God has chosen, to place God's name there. So the story of the Tower of Babel is the false, is the false alternative to Eden. And God disperses the people who tried to build the Tower of Babel. In chapter 12, God directs Abraham to go to the place that God will uh, determine, has determined. In short, the story of the Akedah is in fact a culminating story of creation. The creation narratives begin in chapter one, but they don't end in chapter three. You have the creation of chapter one, you have the second creation narrative of the Garden of Eden, different creation narrative. And the question is, what is the relationship between chapter one and chapters two and three? And then you have the world is destroyed and the world is remade. That's a redoing of chapter one, the main character being Noah. Noah recreates the world or is part of the recreation of the world, Sevam Elohim. But Noah does not discover the sacred space. That's not Noah's responsibility. The sacred space, that's Abraham. The alternative to Eden is Abraham. So the story of the Akeda, actually, the placement of the Akeda and the great significance of the Akeda is that it is the culmination of the creation narrative. Very important point. Actually, when you think about it, it's obvious. It's obvious. Of course, that's one of the points of the story. And it's actually very interesting because, and I told this many times, um, you know, I mentioned this many times. When we think of Abraham, we think of Avram, the great father, the patriarch. Father means the beginning. We think that the story of, the, of, the story of Israel begins with Abraham. That's how we see it. He's the bearer of the covenant, the promises made to Abram, your descendants will come back to this land. Your descendants will enter into the covenant. As it says in chapter 15, on that day, God made a brit with Abraham concerning the land. So we think of Abram as being the Av, the Avram, which of course what he is. And being the father, we think of him as being the first. The story of the Jewish people begins with Abraham. And that is certainly true. But in point of fact, 
the story of Abraham is not just the beginning of something, but the story of Abraham is the end. When you're reading the Abraham narratives, I'm not gonna go back to this now, but the Abraham narratives are about a fulfillment of God's plan within creation. The person who said this explicitly before me, even before me, someone else said it. His name was Mark Incentive. It's incredible. People write about Abraham, right? Books don't understand the most basic things about the story. No understanding of it. Mark Incentive makes a very simple point. Baruch Avram Riel El Yom Tone Shamayim Varex. Uvaruch El Yon Ashemigain Sarecha Biadecha. Blessed is Abraham to the God. To which God? the creator of heaven and earth. Because in that story, in chapter 14, is when Abraham symbolically conquers the land. He defeats the four kings who defeated all the powerful nations of the land of Canaan. The Rephaim, the Amim, the Chori, Amalek, you name it. It's all there. Says Malkit to Avram, you are blessed to God. Why? You have fulfilled God's mission. You've enabled God's mission to bear fruit. What was God's mission? God's mission was the creator of Shemayim Varetz was to create all, but within the all, to create a specific place. Elotodota Shemayim Varetz, chapter two, verse four, which is the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden is a place we can't go back to, but there's an alternative to Eden. And you, Abraham, have secured, symbolically secured that place in chapter 14. So blessed are you to God, and blessed is God who gave you the resources to do it. That fundamentally is what I call tefillah. That's the Shmona Esrei. Shmona Esrei is I'm here to do your bidding, but I need help. I need the resources. I need some insight. I need good health. I need uh, forgiveness. I need to be in a place where I'm secure, safe, a safe society. Those are the needs that we all have. In order for me to do the work, to fulfill your will, everybody has a different task. That's what Malki Tzedek was saying. Malki Tzedek says it, says it all. You, Abraham, are fulfilling God's plan, the plan of the creator. And that's what you have here in chapter 22. So in reading the Avram story then, when you're reading the Avram story of chapter 14, for example, you are thinking not about Avram as the first, but you're thinking about Abraham as, in a sense, the last, the one who's going to complete the creation. And the same thing is true with the Akedah. The Akedah will confirm that Yitzhak is the covenantal child, that's true. But the Akedah will also confirm that God's creation, or the purpose of God's creation, is in fact fulfilled. The story that I've told many times, I'll just repeat it again, and then we'll move on from this. Story I told you when I was much, much younger, and I was a big fan, and still I'm a big fan of classical music. And uh, I had a very good friend who was a very fine musician. In those days, we had what we call records. You know, the young people don't, don't know about records. Uh, the records, they call vinyl, whatever. Anyway, so he sent me a, uh, a recording of Mozart's 24th piano concerto. It's one of the greats, actually. D minor. Mozart, 24th piano concerto of Mozart. Anyway, one of my favorites. 
So anyway, the record comes with a jacket that comes inside and you, you can read on the back all about the music. So when I was growing up in my family, which was, music was 24, six, you know, whatever, my family. So uh, my mother used to talk, talk about Beethoven all the time. You know, Beethoven was very great. Mozart came before Beethoven. Yeah, Mozart came before Beethoven. Anyway, so I'm reading this jacket of this record, talked about Mozart. Mozart was extremely innovative in terms of the Baroque music. He took the Baroque music, he took Bach, and he put all kinds of innovations into the Baroque style. That essentially is what the jacket said. And I read this thing, I was like flabbergasted. What do you mean Bach? Mozart comes before Beethoven. So I played, I, I played Mozart. All of a sudden, I'm hearing Bach. I never heard that before. I, I wasn't thinking in those terms. But suddenly I had a different point of reference. Remember that to this day, remember that listening to that recording. And that is a very good uh, parallel to what we have with Avram. When you read the Avram stories, you're thinking about it as the beginning. He's the first. There's Avram and there's Yitzhak and there's Yaakov and there's the Brit, etc. But we have to remember the Torah didn't start with Abraham. The Torah starts with creation. And therefore, God's plan in creation, which Avram is going to is going to realize or allow God, as it were, to realize God's plan, makes God's plan come to fruition. That takes place actually at the Akedah. That's when Hamakom, the place, the alternative to Eden, is this place. The one who understood this very well, by the way, was the person who wrote the Nusach of the prayers for Rosh Hashanah. Because in Rosh Hashanah, in the central service of Rosh Hashanah, called Zichronot, it talks about God remembering. And it has three themes. Remembering means judgment. That's Adam. Remembering means providence. That's Noah. Noach Remembering means covenant. That's Abraham. There's Adam, there's Noah, and there's Abraham. And the theme of Rosh Hashanah is creation. And the creation is made possible through these three characters, through Avraham, Adam, and Noah, and Avraham. And the section ends actually with Akedah Yitzchak. That's what you end with, right? We ask God to remember the Akedah. So in terms of describing the world that God has created, which has these elements of, and for the, for the, uh, for the writer of the, of the text, each one represents a certain idea. Adam is judgment, Noah is providence, Abraham is covenant. And you end with the Akeda. And the presumption of the writer is that the Akeda is a culmination of all that comes before. So this is the point over here. Because the verse, why we were banished in the first place. And over here, it's about, it's related to that story. Just to, just to, to frame it, just to say it better. It's not just words. The words convey a certain meaning. The point of the banishment from the Garden of Eden is that the human being might think the human is God. 
That's a complete non-starter for the Chumash. Absolute red line. What's over here, the point of the Akedah, what allows Avram to, to, be, to be truly covenantal. And in being covenantal, in confirming the covenant, in a certain sense, Avram becomes immortal. Not personally immortal, but the covenant is that which in theory is actually forever. What, what allows for that possibility is Avram's willingness to sacrifice Yitzchak. Because if he does sacrifice Yitzchak, he has no future. He actually accepts, he accepts, he accepts the command and he's willing to give up his future because the entire future depends on Yitzchak. He is the one, Bincha Yechitcha. He's the only one who can carry the covenant forward. If Avram will sacrifice Yitzchak, in theory, that's the end of the end of the end of Abraham. It's the end of Yitzchak too, but it's the end of Abraham. So the willingness to the embracing of one's mortality for the Chumash is the prerequisite to achieving a certain measure of measure of immortality. That's the deep connection between these stories. Of course, it's reflected always in the language, obviously, but this is the point of the Akeda and the profound significance of the Akeda. So now we have four points about after these things. Yes, it's Yishmael. Yes, it's related to the Avimelech story. Yes, it's related to all the Abraham stories. But beyond that, but beyond all that, it's related to the book of Breshi, beginning in chapter one, verse one, the creation narratives. This is the reason I think that the Akedah is truly a foundational story and so many other stories play off the Akedah. Now, before I get to go, go back once again to the uh, Avimelech story, so I want to get back to that. But before I get back to that, let me pause here for a moment. If anybody has comments or questions, please speak up. Or in the chat, whatever it is. Might it be, David, that this is also uh, the point when David um, accepts his mortality and Hashem shows him the place? Of course. Those two stories are... You know, I just, I'm coming out with a book, I hope, it's supposed to come out at the end of June. It's about kinship in the book of Shmuel. So one of the points that I, one of the central points of the book actually, is that the stories of David, um, and the book of Shmuel is, I mean, it's a fantastic book, obviously, but the, it presents David as deeply flawed. It talks about abuse of power, it talks about all of those things. But in addition to all that, there are all kinds of interesting parallels between the stories of David in the book of Shmuel and the stories of uh, Abraham. The Abraham uh, stories of Breshit are kind of foundational stories for the book of Shmuel. <laughs> and the end of the book of Shmuel, the chapter you're referring to, chapter 24, is when David takes a census. Right. And there, David turns to God and says, you know, when God, David sees the people are being killed, uh, people are dying. David says, why should these people die? I'm the one who took the census. Let your hand be, let your hand be against me in my father's house. That is to say, I'll give up the kingship. I'll have no future. And God says to David, okay, now that you've said that, go up and build a, an altar 
in this threshing place of Aravna Hayyusei. Of, uh, of, uh, right. Because Aravna say, of course, the name Aravna, Avofresh, Rav Noin is playing off of Aron, which is the sacred place. And the point is that David will actually succeed in establishing the house of David forever. Dafka, as Debbie says, Dafka at the time when David says, uh, take care of me, remove me. But your literally hand be against me, is the moment at which God says to David, okay, now that you understand your limitations and you accept them, you're willing to forgo the kingship. Your willingness to forgo it is what is the prerequisite to actually becoming king. The, the ideal king is one who understands what the king's role is. And the king's role in the Chumash and the Book of Shmuel is twofold. One is the, the one, the king is the one that God chooses. That is to say, for the Book of Shmuel, it means the king understands that the king is here to do God's bidding. That's one responsibility of the king. And the second responsibility of the king that David said in the verse that you cited is that, uh, that the king has to come the king should be from one of your brothers. That is to say that the king's responsibility is to work for the people. The king has two responsibilities. The king is God's employee and the king's obligation is to do what is best for the people. Easier said than done, but that's what, that's how the Chumash, at least through the prism of the book of Shmuel, describes what the king uh, has to understand. And the last chapter of Shmuel, David understands both of them. Because David understands that he has sinned when counting the people. Because the people don't belong to the king, they belong to God. He has preempted God. And then David sees the people die. And David says, if, if they're going to die because of me, I shouldn't be the king. At which point God says to David, now that you understand that, you, 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 you will become the king and not just will you become the king, you will, you will bring the sacrifice in the sacred place. Now the sacred place, Goran Aravna, David saw the angel above Goran Aravna. So God chose the threshing floor of Aravna, not David, but David saw it and David goes there. So the parallel to the, uh, just to, there's a lot more to be said about this. I was thinking of talk, giving a whole shear on this, but I won't. But I want to make the, the, the deeper point over here, which is very important point. And that is that the parallel between the David story in chapter 24 and the Avram story in chapter 22 is this. When will Abraham discover the sacred place? He discovers the sacred place. <coughs> he discovers the sacred place, actually, at the very same instant that he reclaims Yitzchak. The two things happen simultaneously, actually. He's gonna bring the sacrifice and the sacrifice is both a reclaiming of Yitzchak, affirming through his actions that Yitzchak is the one and only covenantal child, something that Avram has not fully understood until now. And the second point is at the moment he brings the sacrifice, he has also determined the sacred place. Is the place that God sees, that God chooses. At the end of his life, he has been able to discover the sacred place, but his discovery of the sacred place coincides with something else, which is the discovery of exactly 
how the family is supposed to work, which is the main theme of the Abraham stories. Once he understands how the family works, who was Sarah, who was Yitzhak, who was Ishmael, who was Hagar, etc., Then and only then can he discover the sacred place and affirm it and become covenantal. And the David story is exactly the same. Only when David understands fully what it means to be king, that is to say, God's employee, you don't take any census. The census is taken through the temple, the half shekel, because we are God's people. The king just works for God, that's all. Works for God and works for the people. And the moment David understands that and says it, listen, if I'm not doing my job, get rid of me. Um, so yeah, so then get rid of me, get, get, get someone better. I'm only king if I'm serving the people, says God. Now that you understand it, now you can affirm the sacred place. That's the deep parallel between the two. Now that's just, that's, that's a very important point. There's so much more to say about it, but I'm gonna leave that for now. Let me, let me one last point though about about this place of the Akeda, and then I'll take more questions. I see there are more questions. We had remarked, the Rashbam said it. Story begins after these things. And the Rashbam says, after these things, in the beginning of chapter 22, presumably refers to chapter 21, which just came before. He had his own interpretation as to what that means. But that the two are connected seems self-evident to us. Of course, 22 follows 21. But the point is, in chapter 21, the last story is about Abimelech. And here the point is that we had already seen Avram's dealings with Abimelech in chapter 20. In chapter 20, when Avram talks and Abimelech talk, they sound pretty similar. They're both excuse makers. The word gam was very significant in both, in both the speeches of Abimelech and Avram of chapter 20. After Abimelech grabs Sarah, not consensually, God says, you better return this woman. She's married woman, you're gonna die. Return her. What do you, God, would you, would you kill even a righteous nation? She said, brother, right? She, she, he said, sister, she also said, so he said, she said, and what about you, God? You're problematic too. As far as I'm what about Avimelech? Niki Kapayim, he says, Tomlev Tzadik. Those are his terms for Avimelech. God says, I know, I know what kind of Tzadik you are. Therefore, I spare you. That's why I'm stopping you. I know, how, what, I know you're, you want to do the right thing. And if you don't do the right thing, I plan to kill you, you and all that you have which is not the way God talks to Tzadikim. Then Abimelech says to Avram, why did you lie to me? Why did you say she's your sister? I was afraid, afraid you'd kill me. But the truth is, she really is my sister. And also, I'll give you a third terence. We do this every place we go. So the Avimelech of 20 and the Abraham of 20 are very similar, but that's very problematic. And then at the end of chapter 21, there's already a movement of Avram away from Abimelech. Because Avram says, listen, you stole my, your servant stole the water. Here are seven lambs I set aside, Sheva Kvasot. This is mine. Let's get everything straight. Avimelech is the same character. I don't know who did it. It's your fault for not telling me. We'll take care of it tomorrow. Gam and Gam. It's Avimelech. But Avram is different. He's already moving away from Avimelech. And now with the Akedah, 
one further step away from Avimelech. Because after all, Avimelech was told by Abraham and also told by Yitzchak later, same thing. Why did you do this? I saw, says Abraham and Yitzchak in chapter 26, and Yirat Elohim This place has no fear of God. A king that has no fear of God will do whatever the king wishes to do. So Avram said, that's why I did it. And now the question is, has Avram taken the final steps to completely be different from Avimelech? Says the Akedah, yes. This is what God said to Avimelech, right? says God. I know what a righteous person you are. That's why I spared you. So we have the language of Avimelech built into the Akedah, but exactly the opposite. That what Avram has done over here, he's worthy of leadership, one might say of kingship, Dafka because of the Akedah, Dafka because he doesn't make up his own rules. It's not an accident in the Chumash that the king has to write a Sefer Torah, not just write it, but actually read it. Why? Because the king, more than anybody else, has to have the fear of God. The king can't make up his own rules. And that's what's going on here at the Akedah. So therefore, just to straighten what the Rashbam was saying, apart from what we said earlier, that it's about determining the sacred place. Abraham doesn't determine the sacred place. It's not Beersheba. Even though he lives there for many years and he plants a tree and he calls to the eternal God, but the place is the place that I will tell you, says God. That's true. But the deeper point is, it's, what, it's a continuation of the Abraham narrative of the Avimelech narrative of chapter 20, and the end of chapter 21. Okay, I'll stop here and take a comments. We have now four different uh, meanings. They don't contradict, they're all true. So let me stop here for a moment, take comments or questions, then we'll continue with the occasion. In this, in this story, Abraham, Abraham is the subject and Yitzchak is the object. Is there any discussion about how uh, Yitzchak's emuna in Hashem and his relation to his father is affected by going through this? So the story of Yitzchak over here, look, the, the story of Akedas Yitzchak in the shot of the Chumash is about Abraham. It's not about Yitzchak. Yitzchak is presented as a youngster, actually. It's called a Nar, which doesn't tell us how old he is exactly, but he seems like a not fully understanding what's going on. He, you know, again, how old is he? We don't know. It sounds like he's a youngster, actually, in the story. And when you read the Chumash, that's the sense one gets. And certainly within the tradition, Akedas Yitzchak is mostly about Abraham. Having said all that, in terms of the Midrashim, they tend to present Yitzchak often as a full partner. They focus on the expression They have Yitzchak being 37 years old at the time, which case he's not a child. Um, what is driving that it's hard to know what's driving it. Some have suggested that what is driving this is the uh, response to the uh, Christian narrative about the Akedah. Obviously for Christianity, the Akedah is the pretty central story. God's, God's sacrificing his son, let's put it that way, right? But the point is that the uh, claims some have made is that unlike 
in the crucifixion story of the Christian Bible, where Jesus at least seems to, at one point, I wouldn't say have doubts about it, but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's another way. And then says at the end, okay, if, it's, if this is your will, this is your will. Um, in the case of the Midrashic reading of Yitzchak, he is a full partner. He doesn't question it at quite the opposite. He says, make sure that the sacrifice is kosher, make sure your time be tight. He become, you know, a little bit even, uh, one might say grotesque in some of the details. But the fact is that it's well possible that what drives some of these Midrashim is not just the attempt to buttress Yitzchak in general, but, but specifically to, um, to be a counter to the uh, to the to the to, to, to Christianity, and to see Yitzchak as the, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect willingness, and even helping Abraham in terms of the sacrifice. But in terms of the pshat of Chomish, I don't really see that at all in the pshat. He does he puts up no resistance, but I think the focus of the story is completely upon upon, upon Abraham. That's 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 for sure. Um, yeah. What else? Can I just point out one one thing that struck me that uh, in the original in the first lech lecha it's lech lecha me'artzacha etc etc and here in pasuk bet in um, God says kach na he doesn't say kach et bincha he says kach na et bincha he's much more like gentle to to uh, uh, Abraham, and three times the word Ben appears, Beno and Beni. That's right. And twice, and twice Yachdav. I mean, there's a lot of uh, positive sentiment, if you want to call it that. It you is. Know. It says straight it, up, Asher Ahavta, the one really? you love. There's no suggestion Sorry? in the text that I, Abraham doesn't love Isaac. There's no suggestion whatsoever. No. Asher Ahavta, he may, he may yes. say with smile, but he loves, he loves them both. There's no, no question about that. The, uh, for sure. I mean, again, this is, you know, the, the word Nisa is only with the Akeda. The, the uh, Iraq, within our tradition, Pirkei Avot, you have it, Pirkei Drebulezer, you have it. Um, you have the idea of the 10 Nisio note. And um, it comes in the Gemara as well. The fact of the matter is that um, the first Nisayon is also very difficult to leave everything behind. It's not a simple matter. Go to some unknown place to leave everything behind requires a certain amount of courage, faith. So that's for sure. But here the word not does appear. And I would add to what you're saying, not just that the word Ben appears several times, but actually Abraham calls Isaac his son. Yes, son, what is it? Father and father and son. There's something very deeply connected to it. It's a deep connection over here. There's no sense that he doesn't love Yitzchak. None whatsoever. The only thing is, he is going to obey what God has told him to do. There is no sense in the story of Abraham trying to resist what God has told him. Zero. And there's no sense in the Chumash that I can detect anyway, that the Chumash has suggested that that's problematic. There's been a lot of suggestion over the last several years, the last many years, that raise a question about, you know, what did, that Abraham should have argued with God that his failure to argue with God is not right, that God is angry that Abraham didn't argue with God, is a suggestion that that's the reason that God doesn't talk to Avram anymore, because he's angry at Avram that he didn't object. 
And to me, this is all in the realm of nonsense. There's no, no, no basis for this on any level. And the reason I say there's no basis is because the way the Chumash presents Avram's response and the language that it uses is exactly a mirror of, of what God said to do. God has three verbs, take, walk, and bring up as a sacrifice. And those three verbs appear twice. They appear both in the initial going and they appear in verse number 13, 14, when So it's a perfect, for the Chumash, it's a perfect fulfillment of what God demanded. Yes, it was not God's intention that Yitzhak be sacrificed, but Avram doesn't necessarily know that. So on one hand, he's going to do what he knows God is saying. On the other hand, perhaps he does believe on some level that things will work out for the best. That I think we can say. Not that he knows it's going to work out for the best, but what he, what he says, he expresses that possibility. God will choose. God makes the choices. I just adhere to what God said. But I, I see no sense in the Chumash that the Chumash is bothered by this problem. And in response to the, we may be bothered by it which is completely fine. But the first step is to see what it actually says. And the second step is, okay, this is what it says. How do I respond to it? Maybe I don't like it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not gonna follow that path. Maybe I will. People make their own choices. But the important thing is not to distort what the Chumash is saying to the best of our ability to read it clearly. And to me, this is pretty obvious that what the Chumash is saying is not that he did the wrong thing. If we ask ourselves the question, so how come when it comes to Sodom, he does argue with God? He argues with God, very strikingly. There's a long protracted disagreement or argument in chapter 18. Abraham calls into question God's righteousness. It is true that two times in that conversation, Abraham talks about himself. What am I, how am I to argue with God? I'm dust and ashes. But he keeps talking. So how do we account for the fact that in chapter 18, Abraham argues with God, negotiates, gets all kinds of concessions. At the end of the day, it turns out that from the Torah's standpoint, Abraham had a good thought in mind, but in point of fact, Sodom doesn't have any righteous people. Okay, but that's his argument. And the Chumash seems to respect that argument. So how come over here for the people, the wicked people of Sodom, Davinus, but for his own innocent child, he doesn't daven. But I think the answer to that is very simple. There's actually two answers, I believe, which are very straightforward. The simplest one is the following, that in chapter 18, God has invited his prayer. God said to Abraham in chapter 18, Can I conceal from Abraham what I plan to do? After all, Abraham, uh, Abraham is, uh, is blessed. He commands his family to do tzedakah or mishpat. Therefore, I can conceal from Abraham what I plan to do. Because he's lasso tzedakah or mishpat. So Abraham turns to God and says, really? You're so concerned about tzedakah or mishpat? mishpat? Maybe the tzaddikim, the entire prayer of Abraham, is based on tzedakah or mishpat, but he has an invitation. God invites Abraham to pray. Over here, God does not invite Abraham to pray. God didn't invite Noah to pray either. You need an invitation. Okay, maybe today we have a standing invitation after Abraham. 
But that's the simple answer. And the second point is that, and then I'll come to Susan has a question. I'll get to Susan in one second. But the, the, the second point is, when you're reading the Chumash, we're reading the words, we're not, we're not actually hearing though. We're not hearing the inflection. The Torah says, Elohim saw et Abraham. It's a test, says the Torah. Now, God is not saying to Abraham, I'm going to test you necessarily. But in point of fact, we don't know the tone of voice. We all know that in speaking to people, we can often tell when someone's talking to us, we can often tell in the way that they speak, in the inflection, in the tone, in many other things, the way they hold their body, whether there is room to dispute it or not. Sometimes someone says something and I say to myself, there's no point in discussing this. It's already, it's a done deal. There's no point. And sometimes you get a sense, you know, maybe we can have a discussion. Maybe we can change the status quo, etc. So it's hard to know because we're not hearing, we're reading, but not hearing. But in any event, what's pretty clear is that the Torah says from the very outset, this is going to be a test. There's no room for Abraham's dispute over here. This is the test. This is the way it's going to happen. And there is no invitation to speak. You're being presented with a test. Show up tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. There's a test. And there's nothing to talk about. This is the test. Susan, what do you want to say? I just wanted to point out a different stream of conversation between Abraham and Hashem throughout the story that also speaks to why Hashem, why Abraham would not have argued with Hashem, which is that he's had this conversation 20 times already. He said, who's going to be the, who's going to be the son? Is it going to be Eliezer? No, no, no. It's going to be your kid. Is it going to be Ishmael? No, no, no. It's going to be Yitzchak. I promise you it's going to be Yitzchak, such that Abraham could easily have entered this situation completely confident that Yitzchak had to survive it because Hashem told him so many times. So there's no reason to pray or argue about it because he realizes that this is some sort of a tech ass, it's some sort of a thing, but that it isn't what it seems like it's going to be. And he already knows that. Well, that may be the case, but when reading, when reading the story, if I'm Yitzchak bound on the altar and Avram's picking up that knife, you know, saying it's a... Uh... I'm not, I'm Avraham. That's what you just said. I'm not. Right. Well, I understand Avraham. that. What I'm saying is that I, 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 I shy away a bit from the idea that he knows for sure he won't have to do it because, because I think that would remove the, 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 the test if he really knows it's not going to happen. The sense that I have is he knows what he's heard. He also knows of the prior promise and he probably can't figure out how in the world these two statements of God can sit side by side, which is a very good question. And the Chumash is bothered by that question too. We'll get to it in a minute. But, uh, you know, I would say that he, I would say that actually he doesn't know. You know, it's what Nachman said, the highest level of knowledge is to know we don't know. He can't figure out how this is gonna play out. Somehow will play out. But on the other hand, he does need a command from God not to do it. Otherwise he's gonna do it. But the angel has to call down from heaven and stop him. And even the Avraham, Avraham, the double Avraham, it's a sense of alarm. Avraham, Avraham, you know, not just one, but it starts with one, but stop. Because there's a sense that he's actually going to do it. That's the sense I have in reading it. But uh, anybody else want to comment? Yes. yes. Rabbi Silver? Yes. Uh, uh, there is another aspect of uh, the recognition that you are not God. 
is not just that you recognize your own mortality that you pointed out, but also that you are not in charge of life and death of others. Uh, and so Avram has to realize that too, that even though that he is commanded to do this, but he is not God and he has to listen to God's, don't do it, don't do it. Right, I mean, but the, the point here I would make is that that is true. When people, we, we say Avram killing Yitzchak, the Chumash does not actually put it in terms of killing. The Chumash distinguishes, we may not distinguish, but the Chumash distinguishes between killing and sacrificing. That God, the Chumash seems to suggest, has the right, if God wishes, to claim human life. God chooses not to do that, but God could do it. That's the point. The Torah is opposed to human sacrifice, clearly, here and elsewhere. But the fact is that it never made the claim that God could not take someone's life. Because God's all life, life belongs to God, one might say. God may choose not, doesn't choose that path, but I think that's, well, that certainly is the case that the taking of life, the question is how far you go with this and what constitutes taking of life and different traditions have different thoughts about that. You know, the pacifist would say you never take anybody's life, you know, and, and the uh, true pacifist. But the, um, but yeah, but I think understanding that the human is not God. The human is finite, limited in what we understand God is infinite. God is so vast. The universe is vast. So that's uh, just to get a, an accurate take on who we actually are. Yes, was Aviva wanted to say? Yes, yes, thank you. Oh. You have it too. Okay, Aviva, then you have it. Go ahead. Okay. Did I unmute? Um, I'd like to make a comment and I have a question. The comment is connected to what Susan said that um, when you talked, last week about um, that he tells the Na'arim Anachnu Nashuva. It was the first time that that it occurred to me that um, one of Abraham's significant characteristics is his belief in God, his faith in God. So that rather than seeing this as blind obedience, you want me to kill my son, I'll kill my son, that maybe he had such a profound faith that he believed that if he follows God's commandment, it'll all work out. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I agree, but I, I don't, I, but I agree with you a thousand percent. I'm just saying is it will work out for the best, but I'm not sure he knows what the best is. Right, right. But I'm in God's hands, we're in God's hands. You know, it's it's, it's going to work out for the best, but God will determine what is the best. We, we, we often don't know what is the best. We try to figure out Look, we're trying to figure out what God demands of us all the time. What is, what is the right thing to do? At least we should be thinking about that. And what will and the, not always the outcome the right be? Yeah. Now, the, the question is, you mentioned that when the angel says, and you made a parallel between that and between Adam, that God is afraid, I was trying to figure out how they're, because I'm not quite clear. Could you elaborate on the connection? Right, the point that I was making was that the, the concern of the Torah, the deep concern is that the human being, the, the, what the Chumash is about, I, I would say the Garden of Eden story is about, we're, we're banished from Eden. What, 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 what the Chumash I think is interested in is 
What does it mean to be human? The Chumash is not interested in history. It's not interested in science either. This is, what does it mean to be human? Mm. We're talking about the realm of something like we call myth. The myth is true in the sense, the myth is a take on, is a interpretation of life that we call myth. And there are many myths. And Judaism has its own set of myths, not one. And the question is for the Garden of Eden story, which is the central story, what does it mean to be human? The claim the Chumash is making, I think, is that on one hand, the human being is by nature limited. The human being is not God. You know, the Ramam defined God by what God is not. I'll define the human by what, God, what the human is not. The human is not God. The human is limited. The human is mortal. The human is prone to error. The human is sensual. The human is many things. And the question that interests the Chumash is, this human being, can the human being interact with the infinite, all-knowing, perfect God? How is that possible? Is that possible? And the point I think of the Chumash is that the human being can connect to God in a very deep way. And in fact, to some extent, even become godlike, even become immortal in a certain sense, not through the human's own personal uh, lifespan, which is limited, but rather by being part of a, of, a, of, a, of a covenantal relationship. But what my point is that the covenantal relationship is only possible when the human understands the human is not God. The first attempt to recreate the Garden of Eden, the Tower of Bavel fails, because they want to build the tower, the head of which is in the heavens and make a name for themselves. And that's a non-starter because what this suggestion is we can build a tower to the heavens. We can contest God, we can be God's equals, however one takes it. And that's doomed to failure, that can't work. So what, in order to be connect to God, one has to be fully human, but being fully human means to understand human possibility and human limitation. That I think is the, that's the connection between the two stories. The concern of God in chapter three is the human being having, having disobeyed is prone to, if what a human immortal, human would become like one of us. And that's not the purpose of creation. That's not who the human can or should be. So the fact is, my point about the Arcade is, and Debbie's point about the uh, story of King David at the end of the book of Shmuel, is that a prerequisite, a precondition to connecting to the immortal God is, a, is an embracing of one's own mortality. That was my point about the, the language is reflective of this, but the, the language is a reflection of the deeper truths. And in the study of Torah, we're trying to get to the deeper ideas. So of course, that's what it's about. So the fact is, that was my point about those two stories and that the land of Canaan in general and the temple site in particular are both alternatives to the Garden of Eden. You can't go back to Eden. And the reason you can't go back to Eden is because Eden is not a place for people that have knowledge. Once you know, once you have knowledge, which you got by partaking of this tree, forbidden fruit, doesn't matter. Once you have knowledge, you become responsible for all kinds of things. You make your choices. Hopefully you make good choices. The Garden of Eden was not set up for people to make choices. There are virtually no choices there. It's just one choice, which we disobey. We, we, but it's, so you're in the world of knowledge. In the world of knowledge, 
you are, it's a word of responsibility. And the Garden of Eden is not a place for responsibility. That's the point. Okay, now, uh, Yocheved, go ahead. Okay, so I'm coming back a little bit to a little bit to uh, Susan and a little bit to what you just said, I think. But uh, the, if this story is pivotal, pivotal in the sense that uh, it's the spot at which Avraham is handing the covenant over to Yitzchak. Um, it, it also reads, when you look at Nishtachavev uh, and the Shuva Alehem, we'll, we'll uh, worship, but worship with the sense of bowing down and, and submission and, and come back to you suggests that Avraham is actually teaching Yitzhak something through this experience about being the covenantal heir means total submission. And um, that they're gonna go through that drama, but they're also gonna you know, worship flat on the ground in total submission. Um, I would say this, that actually, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would agree that he's, that that's the focus. The focus, I mean. Well, I'm not saying it's the focus, but I'm right. saying it's an echo that's going I mean, I think, I think the point is well taken. Let me, let me just say this. Your comment elicits many thoughts on my part. And maybe next week, it's almost out of time already. I thought we'd be way beyond this, but not, not bad. Just the idea of ishtachava, to lie, which means to lie prone on the ground as the Talmud understands it. Um, that's actually very interesting. In terms of, I'm just reading a book now because I'm working on a new project about prayer. And it's interesting that we don't have, at least the pra common practice of the Jewish people, certainly in the world of Ashkenaz, is not to have ishtachava. The closest we get is tachanun. But in our Shvon Esri, it's called Amida, actually. We stand up. We don't, we're not prone on the ground. We bow in the beginning, we bow at the end, even though we don't bow to the ground. But the idea of accepting, you know, being Ishtachava means you're accepting your own place as being in a lower, lower space, that you are accepting it, etc. So this, the, the whole idea of Ishtachava, which is very striking, Abraham did say, and we have Ishtachava in several of the Abraham stories. Maybe I'll briefly talk about this next week. Um, so that is actually very interesting. I think that one, in reading the Akedah, having read the Akedah, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, after after the angel says don't do it, then one I think can be the arcade is saying don't do it. But what are the lessons that one learns from the arcade? Part of it could be the willingness, if if called upon, to in fact give up one's life, which is the lesson that the in terms of the Ashkenazic traditions they certainly took that as a primary lesson that that Kiddush Hashem for them, the willingness to give up one's life for for God. Became very central in their in their not only in their thinking but in, in their in their behavior as well. So yeah, so I would say that the lesson that maybe Yitzchak and everybody learns from it is precisely what you suggest. Whether or not Abraham is instructing Yitzchak or whatever, maybe he is, but it's certainly a lesson that Yitzchak takes or could take from the Akedah, and it's a lesson I think that we can take from the Akedah. Let me um, I have to stop at this point. I thought we would get way beyond this, but well, not so bad. Um, I do want to mention uh, one thing. First of all, that tomorrow night we have the um, first of three lectures by Professor Berlin, Adele Berlin. For those who don't know, Adele Berlin is one of the 
really pioneers in terms of the literary approach to the study of Bible. So it's very worthwhile to you. She was a, she's a professor emeritus in Maryland and uh, she's taught Vidrisha in the past. Her main focus has been the Ketuvim and she's really one of the important voices, has been one of the important voices in terms of the development of a literary approach to the study of Bible. Also a very wonderful person. And uh, so if you get a chance to follow her three uh, sessions, they should be very worthwhile. I did want to mention one other thing. If anybody has an interest, I, um, I finished producing uh, a whole set of recordings on the Book of Shmuel. Um, so I'd, I made 53 recordings in the studio, believe it or not, each one's 50 minutes long. If anybody knows somebody, I like, I need some people to, to actually listen to the recordings and just to make notes if there are things that, you know, if it needs some editing, I have an editor. But if, any, but if anybody has an interest in listening to some of these recordings and helping out by listening to them and making notes about where it should be edited, I would welcome that if you have an interest in it. I mean, the good side is I think they're interesting recordings. I think there are very interesting. We already have one volunteer who's going to do a bunch of them. But if anybody has an interest, to get in touch with the office, with uh, send to Kayla and we'll get back to you. Okay, thank you very much. And look forward to learning, continuing to learn next week. If there are any other questions, you can put them in, the, in, in send me an email, dsilber at drisha.org. I'll try to respond. The next week we'll continue with them. Um, Finish the arcade and move forward to chapter next week as well as in Drisha's other upcoming offerings. Um, have a great day and a great week.